Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Biden administration is pushing technology manufacturers to adopt stronger security practices. Part of that push is making sure the government's own software vendors can vouch for the security of their products. That'll involve signing off on a new form being developed by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me now. He's been covering this issue. Hey, Justin. Hey, Jared. So what is new with this uh, software security form from CISA? Yeah, CISA released the second draft of this secure software development attestation form last week. It released the initial version uh, back in April. And this form will require the government software vendors to attest to following the standards, many of the standards, laid out in the National Institute of Standards and Technologies Secure Software Development Framework. It's just a bunch of different standards for securely developing software. It applies to agencies' use of third-party software, so it doesn't apply to open source software or internally developed software. So this really affects kind of the vast array of contractors who sell software to federal agencies. And it's really a key component of the post SolarWinds hack push to really ensure agencies are using securely built software. Now, one key difference in the latest version of this form from the initial draft is that it would require a software company's chief executive officer or chief operating officer to sign the form. The previous version would have allowed a CEO to designate an employee to sign the attestation and kind of push that down. This is going to require one of those top two executives to sign off on the company's secure development practices. Yeah, what's the thinking? What's the reasoning behind that, moving that signature uh, requirement all the way up to the C-suite level? Yeah, there's a few things going on behind the scenes here. You know, CISA and the Biden administration really believe security needs to be a top level issue for companies. And in the C-suite, as it's called, uh, the Biden administration's national cyber strategy calls for shifting more cybersecurity responsibilities to technology providers rather than leaving it to consumers and end users. And CISA has really urged businesses to embrace its secure by design practices. At the same time, the federal government, as we've talked about, wants to use its own purchasing power to kind of advance those principles, those secure by design practices. So this is really getting that those practices front and center in front of the, the CEOs and COOs of companies that sell to the federal government, many of which are some of the biggest technology vendors out there. Jason Weiss is the former Defense Department's Chief Software Officer, and he's now COO of Testify Sec Inc. He said the attestation uh, is really a big step in terms of forcing top-level executives to think about security. The greatest value of this attestation is that it forces the C-suite and software engineers to have hard conversations. In the past, there was very little reason for a COO or a CEO to go talk to an engineering manager or an engineering director to ask them about how do you make sure what you're building is safe and resilient because of this attestation, they realize that they have to walk the halls and open those doors and have those types of conversations where none existed before. And again, that's Jason Weiss, the former Defense Department Chief Software Officer. And Justin, what else would vendors need to worry about when they're signing this form? 
Yeah, well, you know, it also comes uh, amid really a beefed up effort from the Justice Department to enforce compliance with cybersecurity standards through the False Claims Act. Uh, We've seen several cases over the last couple of years where the Justice Department has successfully uh, either gotten a settlement or sued a company where a a whistleblower actually brought forward um, claims about them uh, essentially um, not being in compliance with government cybersecurity standards. So there's that kind of backstop there legally. Uh, The Securities and Exchange Commission is also actively suing SolarWinds and its chief information security officer, uh, accusing them of misleading investors for not disclosing known risks and not accurately representing the company's cybersecurity measures. Uh, Again, SolarWinds, the company at the center of that 2020 hack. Uh, So, so, you know, you've got the SEC kind of going after companies, going after the C-suite for potentially misleading investors, allegedly misleading investors. I talked to multiple folks who, who pointed to that SEC case as really um, basically driving C-suite attention toward cybersecurity in a way that it, there really hasn't been before. Yeah, and we heard in that clip from Jason Weiss that he at least seems pretty supportive of this whole idea. What are you hearing from the rest of industry about these uh, requirements? Well, so far, you know, we haven't heard a lot of initial reaction from the second draft of the form. The The first draft released earlier this year got a lot of feedback um, around just essentially making it easier for companies to comply with the requirements of the form, the, the secure software development framework. Uh, if they had already gotten a third-party assessment under the FedRAMP program, for instance, um, companies can attest to those requirements by submitting that assessment rather than signing off on the form. So that's one change that uh, CISA made in this latest version of the form, and that's something that groups like the Information Technology Industry Council uh, applauded. At the same time, they're encouraging both CISA and the White House to continue partnering with industry to really um, address outstanding issues like defining who exactly is responsible for a complex system where there's multiple pieces of software, for instance. So there's still some questions to be worked out, but uh, the the word that I heard was cautiously optimistic about this development. And of course, the point of all this isn't just to sign a form, it's to actually take the steps that you need to to make sure your software is secure. So what are those steps that that people need to be thinking through before they can make that attestation? Well, you know, the the NIST Secure Software Development Framework kind of lays out uh, uh, dozens of, of different practices that software vendors can follow to be in compliance with the framework. And, you know, it's a pretty broad framework. There's a lot of options for how uh, organizations can go about meeting the different kind of um, concepts within it. Uh, As I mentioned, you could get a FedRAMP certification if you're, you know, a cloud uh, offering, and that would put you in compliance and show that you've done your security homework per se. CISA is also giving agencies the option to request additional artifacts from vendors under this form. And one of those is a software bill of materials or an SBOM, essentially a list of ingredients that shows the different build libraries that can be found in a given software product. So that's an option. It's not a requirement with this form, but that's an option for agencies. Uh, Beyond that, you know, 
Weiss and others pointed out that the attestation doesn't really give agencies insights into uh, the specific security measures that a company uses. It's just that, an attestation that says we did this with kind of the legal and regulatory backstops that I talked about earlier. So, you know, it's kind of walking this middle ground and it's going to be interesting to see how it drives security forward within government. Here's Weiss again. I would say that overall industry is cautious about this form. I think we understand as an industry that something has to change and that this is probably the first step in a marathon of changes that will have to happen for us to have a more resilient software supply chain. But everybody recognizes, I think the government and industry both, a simple piece of paper with a wet signature from a CEO is not going to change the security overnight. And again, that's Jason Weiss, the Defense Department's former chief software officer. And, and Justin, so what's what's the timeline here and what else needs to happen for this new forum process to, to actually go into effect? Yeah, this form is just a draft again, and it's open for comment uh, through December 18th. Now, once the form is finalized, uh, OMB is requiring agencies to start using it uh, within three months for critical software and within six months for just about any other third-party software that's covered by these requirements. So once OMB finalizes the form, that starts that clock. At the same time, the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council is working on a new rule that would formalize this kind of requirement for attestation as a government-wide acquisition requirement, a FAR, FAR, FAR rule. But that is still in draft, and it's still up in the air as to when exactly that will be finalized. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks very much. Thanks, Jerk. And you can find Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that, I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.